This is episode 135 of the Mindset Game podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. Why not check out some of my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Each week on the Mindset Game podcast, we bring you an inspirational athlete, message, or expert talking about human optimization to teach you how to change the perception of your mindset and become 1% better. Make sure to share this with your friends on your Instagram story, on Twitter, or on Facebook. They can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for Mindset Game Podcast. And on today's show, I've got Phil Steele. He's a freelance broadcaster, best-selling author of the book Nerves of Steel, an after-dinner speaker and a former SEN teacher. As an athlete, you can't afford to give them the respect that they deserve as a legend on the field because you're mentally uh, um, one step behind them then, I suppose. So you, uh, on the contrary, you've got to, you have to go on the field with the attitude, I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're Ray Gravel or your JPR Williams, or whatever, you're not as good as me, type of thing. You've got to believe that. Take a screenshot and tag at James O. Roberts 11. Without further ado, let's get into today's show. So welcome on to the show, Phil. Thank you very much, James. Nice to, nice to be with you. Oh, it's the pleasure is all mine. So before we go into today's show and topic more specifically, Phil, for the, obviously, the listeners at that time, uh, predominantly in Wales, can you give a kind of a brief description of yourself? Yeah, I'm a Cardiff boy. I'm 57 years of age, born in Ely, and I always say I was born in the rough part of Ely. It's called Ely. <laughs> a big council estate on the western side of the city, and uh, been been involved in rugby since the age of eight. You know, playing in primary school. Uh, I um, I trained as a teacher in a place called Cardiff Metropolitan University, which used to be called Cardiff College of Education, which is where Gareth Edwards and JJ Williams, Alan Martin, Lynn Davis, and lots of great Welsh sportsmen went. Uh, great college for turning out PE teachers. I was a teacher for 25 years, um, 10 years of teaching physical education, and then 15 years teaching special needs pupils, slow learning pupils in a in a comprehensive school in the Rumley Valley, which is one of the uh, the South Wales, old coal valleys of South Wales here, for those not familiar, uh, which I did for 25 years. Um, and then I started working for the BBC in 1995 after I finished playing rugby and uh, kept the two careers going and um, gave up teaching 10 years ago. So I'm now a full-time freelance broadcaster, although I've been working for the BBC since I was, since 1995. I also do a lot of after-dinner speaking. I do about 65 uh, after dinner speeches a year, it takes me all around the country and abroad as well, uh, hosting of events and, and that sort of thing. And uh, as, a, as a former player, I was a player with the Morgan Wanderers and uh, Newport in the 1980s. I was, I was got, got in the Wales B squad in 1983, and that was about as far as I got. And um, I, was a, I was a fullback. I was a pacifist, non-tackling fullback, as I describe myself. So, so here I am at the age of 57, talking to you. And obviously you posted, oh gosh, it would have been about a few weeks ago now, uh, getting the chance to play against Ray Gravel. So talk about, to me about that experience to be able to uh, be on the same field as what we probably, you and I would call a Welsh legend. Yeah, well, that, that's the lovely thing about working in the industry that I, that, I, that I work in, is the chance I get to, to, to mix and meet with Welsh, Welsh legends. You know, I'm on... I'm on first nave terms with with Sir Gareth Edwards. I, I watched the two lions, two of the lions tests last year, in Sir Gareth's house uh, for Facebook Live for, for the BBC Sport Wales website. Um, I, I, uh, Barry John wrote a nice uh, testimonial for my book. It's a, it's amazing to, to be able to work in this industry with players who were who I now call sort of friends almost, who were like my heroes when I was a kid. Um, the lovely thing about when I, looking back playing was. Uh, when you come through as a, when you come through as a player, it's always lovely when you play against or you play with people who were your heroes when you were a bit younger. And Grav, of course, because he played as Grav as he was known, played in the Great Welsh side of the seventies. And I played against him three times at the end of uh, at the end of um, his career, beginning of my career. Um, when, when you're on the field with him, it's the same as if you're in, if you're doing an interview. 
uh, if you have to interview Dan Carter in my job, now I have to interview Richie McCaw or, or any sort of like big, big name, you don't think of them at the time as being stars. Ray was just a centre that you had to stop if he came through, you know, and you want to, you want to, you don't want him to do well because he's in the opposition type of thing. And it's the same when you're interviewing, say, uh, Richie McCaw or one of the stars of rugby. They're just people you have to interview very quickly for a minute or whatever. You ask the correct questions. You don't think of them at the time as being legends. And it's only afterwards you think, good Lord, last week I interviewed Richie McCaw. You know, it's sort of a thing you look back on. So to, so to be on the field as, as uh, the same field as, say, a legend like Grav, um, it's something you look back like all these years later and think, well, I played against that legend, you know. It's, it's a kind of a, it's a kind of funny, a strange experience in a way. You don't appreciate it at the time. But do you think that comes down to uh, an athlete's kind of mindset? We kind of uh, don't appreciate the moment till we look back upon it. I think that's that is, and of course, as an athlete um, or as, or as a rugby player, and you would know a, a great deal more than me about you know, sort of high performance, probably. Um, as an athlete, you can't afford to give them the respect that they deserve as a legend on the field because you're mentally uh, um, one step behind them then, I suppose. So you, uh, on the contrary, you've got to, you have to go on the field with the attitude, I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're Ray Gravel or you're JPR Williams or whatever, you're not as good as me type of thing. You've got to believe that. But and this is probably a good, poignant question now, Phil. In, in that kind of mentality now, uh, com- kind of is kind of comparing apple and oranges a little bit. Looking at professional rugby pre- compared to say before nineteen ninety seven, would you say back then there was no difference between the players because obviously you guys had a day to day job as well as the rugby, whereas now this is their sole career. How do you think the mindset from that perspective has shifted? Oh well, when we were, of course, when we played, we were, we were uh, amateurs. Um, I, I used to do a full day in school and then play on a Wednesday night in front of a crowd of seven or eight thousand for Newport against Pontypool or against the Barbarians or against Cardiff. Um, and the, the fact that you had a job next day, if you had, if you had a, if you had a, a good game or you had a, a poor game, you couldn't dwell on it. You know, there was no such thing as, as analysis and, uh, and, and looking over. Uh, your, your performance the next time you learn about your performance would be perhaps the next time in training where the coach would give you a telling off uh, if he thought you'd, you'd made a mistake but it was it was very so you, so in terms of like um, being able to analyze your your um, your performance or or to have any sort of um, psychology or psychological advice with regards to performance you, you couldn't because you, you know you, you just went about your day job the next day now of course these players it's their job and Every, that every little move is analysed, isn't it? You know, when we travel back um, on a on a on a plane the, the next morning um, with the, the professional teams, if we've been covering a match away in Ireland or in or in, in Glasgow, say with the Cardiff Blues, they'll all, all the players will be on their laptops in the airport first thing in the morning. The analysts will have stayed up all night preparing the footage for the players to see. You know, so it's it's a completely completely different mindset uh, uh, now. You know. One of the things I did enjoy about the amateur era was the fact that that it wasn't to, even though we all played to win and nobody tra- trained harder than me, and, I, and, and being a PE teacher, it was almost a professional commitment that I put in because I would train in my lunchtime, you know, train after school, whatever. So I was as fit as it was possible to be. But the fact that you had a day job meant that the game never really took over your life to, to, to the degree that it, it, it does now. But is that to a detriment to, to the player, or could you see? Well, there is some positive to it. Yeah, well, I, I used to, I used to think that um, for me personally, I mean, I was always I was always a confidence player, you know. And if you told me psychology psychology wise, if you told me I was a good fullback, I'd be a bloody good fullback for you on a Saturday. If you told me I was, uh, you know, playing for my place, I'd go into my shell and I. And as well, not not have been on the field, you know. So the fact that we didn't have that that, that sort of professional analyst was a, was a, was a good thing for me, really, because because I I wouldn't be able to dwell on the fact that I'd done something wrong, you know, or, or let negative thoughts and and because I it's been well documented, you know, that I have suffered with mental illness, um, which I did when I was playing as well. 
the fact that I didn't have all that uh, professional um, analysis and all that, uh, that coaching that they get now and the, and, the, and the psychology that they get now was probably a good thing for me, not to, the, not to my detriment. It was a good thing. But talking about this confidence issue now, Phil, do you, well, do you think in the modern era, and probably more so in Wales, it's sometimes overkill. It's it's you do to do an analyst for the sake of it, and in terms of, well, I know that you work for the media, so it's probably a, kind of a controversial question. But sometimes, do they not not think of the players' mental state and well-being for some of the criticism they give, and some some I can understand from coming from my actor, athletic background. Some of it's rightly so, and a player will hold their hands up and say, yes, I have made a mistake. But does it kind of go too far in, in, in certain circumstances? Well, the, 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 to compare again, going back to my era, we, I never got paid a penny for playing for Newport, Ogram, Ogram Wanderers. You know, it was just, you'd get, you'd get petrol money to travel from where I lived in Tuffswell near Cardiff to go to Newport. Um, so I never, never got paid a penny. So if all of a sudden you're, you're training your, your heart out and working really hard for no reward at all, just for the honour of playing in that Newport jersey or that Cardiff jersey or the, or the Slashley jersey, <clears throat> and all of a sudden you read in the Sunday paper what was Steele doing there. He had an awful game. He was pathetic, you know. That used to be a bit hard to take <clears throat> because sometimes you'd look at that and you think, well, A, has this bloke played any rugby at all? Does he know what it's like to be on the field? And B, well, here's me. I'm just doing this supposedly for the love of the game and I'm having to put up with 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 some somebody putting in some quite destructive criticism when I'm just doing it for love anyway. Criticism today of uh, of players, I think, I think if, if you're getting paid exceptional amounts of money, which not all players get, but a lot of players do, certainly much more than I ever saw out of the game, and and that's not a that's not a moan or anything. That's just the way it is. I think you can expect to to be criticised in the same way that if a doctor there's a bad consultation, he can expect to be criticised, or a teacher gives a poor lesson, they can expect to be criticised, you know? I, I think that's that's a good answer, Phil. And, and now we kind of move on to, to your book. What was kind of the initial thoughts to make it, obviously, a publication? What were kind of your thoughts behind, like, well, let's publish this book and get it out into the greater community? Yeah, very good question, that is. I've been asked that quite a bit. Um, just to give the background, the book is called Nerves of Steel, and uh, I've suffered three major bouts of um, depression in my life. Um, the first one was after a rugby injury when I was 23, back in 1984, after a rugby injury playing for Newport. Uh, I'd been in one of the Wales squads and uh, had a knee injury, and I had a bout of depression then. And it was it was sort of linked, doctors told me, um, to uh sort of been out of the game for a long time and almost like a bereavement, you know, you've lost your chance of being becoming an international and your career is sort of taken away. Um, so I've had two, uh, three major bouts of depression, but also uh, uh, bouts of chronic anxiety, which was probably even worse than, than uh, depression. I'm talking about anxiety and I'm talking about having, um, having panic attacks in a changing room before going out to play for Newport against Ebervale. Of claustrophobia because there was no windows in the changing room. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about panic attacks. The very having the, the act of kicking a goal because I was a bit of a goal kicker, you know. Um, having a, a bad anxiety uh, just all the time, really teaching, you know, just in life generally. And of course, that was the 1980s when you couldn't, as a rugby player, you said we couldn't talk about it, you know. So, anyway, so the, going back to your question, the, the reason why I wrote the book because um, most people who, who see me, uh, who are probably listening to this now, who, who see me on the television, on Scrum 5, the BBC on a Friday night, or hear me speaking at dinners, um, they probably think that I'm the most confident and the most uh, erudite and the most uh, sorted man in the world. And what, what they see when they see me on television is the real me. I, I do love life. and I, I am a humorous person and I, I love company and I, I love having a laugh and, and fun. But they, it doesn't reflect what has been going on underneath for for 25, 30 years. Um, so the whole conundrum. Uh, so the, the book is about the whole conundrum of me because when I said to people when I first started to admit that I suffered with depression, everybody would say to me, "Steely, you of all people 
I can't believe you. You must be joking. Even you can't be depressed. A person like you, you're always full of life. You're always full of fun, you know. And that was the reason I sort of brought out the book to show that mental illness, depression, anxiety, if it can happen to Steely, who seems to have life sorted, it can happen to anybody, you know. One of the points I make in the book, James, is that uh, I could pick you an ex-Welsh international team of players who've suffered with uh, depression. Um, it would be captained by Delmi Thomas, the, the great Llanelli second row, three times Alliance tourist, who uh, who captained Llanelli when they beat the All Blacks in the famous game of 72. Delmi could captain the side. He's, he's well documented with suffering with it. Um, uh, Clive Norling, the, uh, the great referee, could referee the match. He's he's well documented as being suffering from it. You've got Tom James now, the, the Cardiff Blues player, has recently come out with Cardiff Blues and Wales Wings, said he's suffered with it. Um, so the whole reason of, of writing the book was to, to, to just get it out there that, it, that, that look, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm Phil Steele, and you, you think I've got life sorted, and I'm, and, and I'm this hail fellow well met, always full of fun. And that is me, that is the true Phil Steele. But there is another side as well, you know, and if it can happen to Steely, why can't it happen to me? The two worst things that, that, you, uh, that you get when you have a bout of depression, the two worst feelings are, uh, first of all, you think you're never going to get better. And secondly, you think you're the only person who's ever had it. It's a very isolating disease, you know, uh, illness. And uh, so to, to answer to those two things, well, if Phil Steele can have it, why can't I? And uh, Phil Steele is better. And he's, you know, he's recovered. So there's no reason why I can't either. You know, that's the whole premise of the book. And do you think, uh, from a personal opinion now, Phil, it generally is the ones that suffer with depression and anxiety are sometimes the ones that people are presumptuous of being very confident in themselves. I think that's, that's a, probably a bit of a generalisation, but a lot of truth in it. A lot of truth in it, yeah. Uh, performers, it's very, com it's very common in performers, it's very common in comedians, it's very common in uh, yeah, you know, the, the acting profession. Um, I, yeah, I think, I, I, I think there is definitely something in that, that you can, uh, funny enough, when I, when I, was, when, when I had uh, my second bad bout in the early 90s, I can remember speaking at a dinner in front of about 300 people and being virtually carried out shoulder high, standing ovation, went down great, you know, and having to stop in a, in a phone box on the way home, no mobiles then, to phone my wife just in tears saying, I, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do, do, love. And I was almost, you know, it was only 20 minutes from home. I had to stop in a phone box and I was just overcome with this awful sort of, this awful feeling of anxiety and just the need to sob, you know. And, um, so uh, there's a, and when I was bad in that, in particular that second bout, the, the only, the one thing I could do was speak at dinners, you know, I could do that without, without any problem at all. And it was, so I suppose it's like an act, isn't it? You know, yeah. um, and that was able to take me out of myself just for that half hour or that 40 minutes and being on that stage and being like the Phil Steele, the performer rather than just Phil. Um, that that was a help, but yeah. I, but to go back to your original question. I think it is, I think it is probably um, probably quite common in in performers, sports people too, because you know we're performers, aren't we? Sports people are performers. Well, as as we're discussing this, I've been struggling with the bouts of anxiety. Gosh, for the last two three months, I think yeah. maybe because of my um, background with doing sports science at university I can kind of look at it in a different light I can I can kind of give myself a little bit of prognosis yes I'm getting help as well on the side but I can kind of answer well I should be looking at it in this kind of light because that's how I was taught at university if you don't believe there's something to be true you need to challenge it whereas well you you, you can attest to with depression and anxiety, you start to believe what you th you're thinking. Yeah, that, that's that's very true. What it is, it's a distortion of the mind, isn't it? I mean, when I had my first bout, uh, I was suicidal. I was 23. I just started teaching. I was engaged to be married to to, to Liz, um, and I didn't know what it was. I thought I was in the want of. A, I wouldn't use this terminology these days, but in those days, I thought I was going around the twist, as as you said. You know, I was psychotic. I wasn't psychotic in terms of uh, hallucinations or voices, but I was 
of a psychotic in terms of thoughts, thought patterns, you know, really distorted patterns of thinking. And, um, and, and of course, uh, I didn't, didn't under, I, I'd heard of depression, but I always thought it was just somebody feeling a bit down in the dumps, you know, for, for, for some reason. But, um, and over the years, uh, the longer I've suffered with it, the more I've read about it, the more I was treated for it, whatever you, you, you come to, you come to gain more wisdom about the uh, the condition, you know. That's the uh, uh, that's the thing. And now I sort of look at it as to, as just to think that it's a part of me, uh, just like the, the the fact that I'm um, a bit asthmatic. I'm an exercise induced asthmatic, and I have to take a pump when I run in the gym. So I still take a a small dose of antidepressant daily just to keep me. It's just part of me, you know. And, and so some people are some people are born with diabetes type one. Some people are born with spina bifida some people are, are, are born with with other uh, issues i just happen to be susceptible to depression and anxiety and this is probably a poignant question uh phil you talked about obviously your anxiety for goal kicking and most people would probably associate obviously the change with claustrophobia and things like that the fear of being in a confined space but what could you put it down to the exact anxiety for goal kicking was it the the actual fear of missing it or well, I tell you I, I describe this is how I describe it in the book you know uh, if I was the, the, the I wasn't always the designated goalkeeper but if I was the designated goalkeeper for the day and I'd be at fullback watching the play going down in the opposition twenty two and I could feel myself getting tense and anxious and my stomach turning over and and, and then. I would dread the referee blowing for a penalty to Newport. And if his arm went out like that, they, they didn't like the, they didn't used to do the playing advantage, but if his arm went up for a penalty to Newport, it would be like the, the judge donning the old black cap to pronounce the death sentence. And the captain would say to me, Steely, do you fancy it? And of course I'd come up, yes, of course, Skipper, and I'd come up. And in those days, there were no, there were no tees. You, you used to dig like four holes and make your own sort of tea out of the, of the, the mud, you know? And as I'd be putting the ball down, I'd be, I'd be literally watching the posts, <laughs> sort of narrower and going narrower and narrower in, in, in front of my face. And then um, I, I'd sort of, and I, I, I remember I'd utter a little prayer to myself as I walk, as I put the ball down, I'd walk back, and I'd utter a little prayer to myself, please God, when I make connection with this ball now, will you let it go long and let it go high? I know it's not going to go over. But will you let it go long and let it go high? Because if people are watching from the sideline, at least they'll say, good effort, Steely. And this was the worst of it, James. If, the, if it did go over, if the ball did go over, instead of being able to tell myself, these voices, instead of being able to tell myself, um, uh, well done, Steely, you've got your kicking boots on today. Good, you're off now. Kick the next one as well. Kick the, you know, good day today. The little thoughts in my head would be saying, you lucky bugger, you're not going to get the next one. You've had it, mate. You, you know? And that was what it would be, what it would be be like, you know. And of no. course, then, and of course, then is the fear of the fear, you know. You're in the change rooms thinking, oh, God, when's that first goal kick going to come to me today? You know, it's just the fear of the of, of knowing you're going to be anxious, which is a bit of a vicious cycle. Well, it's it's, uh, and you talk about in terms of when when would would the points differentiation would have come in? Obviously, going from See if I get this right. From uh, two points for a penalty and conversion to what oh, it was it now. Oh, yeah, always three points for a penalty. Always three points for a penalty in my, which it still is now. And two points for conversion. It was four points for a try uh, when I played. Again, five points in, in the mid nineties, and I retired by then. So um, yeah, so the not not only not, but it, but it wasn't so much the fact of um, of, of if I uh, I'm going to be disappointed now because. If I don't get those three points, the team could lose. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that. If it was that, I could. I could sort of. I could sort of identify with that because that, that's only showing you're a team player, isn't it? It was. It was the fear of being um, exposed, just me, with all these five thousand eyes in the ground on just me, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna mess up, and I'm gonna make a fool of myself, and I'm gonna be. I'm gonna look like Mickey Mouse. You know that was the. That was the, that was the fear. I think that was the, the fear of being, yeah, the fear of being sort of uh, ridiculed. Because one of the things that de- depression does for you is well, it, it just drains you, drains you of confidence, you know, and your self-esteem and everything is just 
rock bottom, which is why I, when I used to step up to take a kick, I knew I wasn't going to get it. Even if I did get it, I knew I wasn't going to get it. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming every kicker, while well, listening to this or who has played the game, can to some degree echo that sentiment. Yeah, of course, yeah. But of course, the difference between the difference between say somebody like me of my personality, and say somebody like Jonathan Davis, the great Jonathan Davis. Um, Jonathan, if Jonathan ever missed a kick, I would, I would, he would probably say, and believe it, or somebody moved the posts, or <laughs> it's, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't his fault, you know. That that, that confidence, that rock solid confidence, would never ever be would always be there for, for, for people like him or Barry John or any of the great sort of kickers, you know. Neil Jenkins, I remember when Neil Jenkins uh, was on the scene when the game went professional and the game was starting to have sports medicine in it. And I remember a, a very interesting interview with, with Neil that he gave. He was, he was a fantastic chap, you know. Uh, and he, was, he said that he, would, he was working with a, a psychologist that taught him that when he, when he looks at the ball, to imagine that all his negative thoughts are draining out of his mind and they're going to be put in a black box, which is on the side of the pitch. And that, that famous sort of long preparation that Neil did for his kicking when he got the sand, he brought the sand on and, and you know, he'd study the post and look at the ball and study. But that was all this mental process of unlocking these sort of neg- any negative thoughts, putting them into the box over the touchline. Of course, we were the amateur era. We didn't, we didn't have anything like that. You know, if you, uh, if you, if you, um, if you had a bad day with a kick in, or it would be never mind, Steely, uh, get get six pints down. You'll soon forget about that. On to next week. You know, that was that was that was the psychological uh, analysis we had. Really, get six pints down. You. Well, that's, it's a different culture sh- uh, shift between, say, what is the modern game now and before the professional era. It's definitely yeah. like yeah. completely yeah. alien to each other. Well, they still they still drink it nowadays. After not so probably not so much, but it's yeah. still a culture and, in rugby. Yeah. And as a, I mean, now if I was playing now, I would have had a psychologist to say, right, why are you feeling like this? You know, and and, and taking me through psychological. Um, uh, um, thought processes to, to 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 get rid of the negative thoughts. I'd have had all that now. I'd have all, all that uh, all that backup. But we were just we were sort of just left to your own devices. And you just sort of you um, you know we didn't have kicking coaches, for example. So if you were just striking the ball wrong, for example, you'd just have to go. I'd have to go in out on the pitch in school next day after uh, lunchtime and just kick a few balls to try and get it right. You know, but you just have to find out find your own method and and. Um, and and work the, as best you can, sort it out yourself, really. Phil, isn't that difficult? Because obviously the pitches back in the eighties and maybe to some degree the nineties are no uh, are nowhere near up to the standard of what they are today. No, that's, that's correct. You didn't have kicking tees and you didn't have sand and all that sort of stuff. You, uh, I remember going on the pitch the one time uh, practicing with the top off um because it was summer and you couldn't dig the anyone who was a goal kicker in those days remember in the summer you could if the pitches were a bit hard you know early season or end of the season or, or in pre-season uh, and you couldn't dig up your, your your temp to put the ball on i remember going out with a with the top of a of an aerosol can turn it upside down and, and sticking the ball in the in the, the hole of the aerosol can you know the top of the aerosol can to lift the ball off the off the ground uh, you know, that was just a method I, I sort of tried. But as you say, you, you were you were just left to your own devices, really. There's no, no such thing as a kicking coach or a or, or certainly not a psychologist, you know. But I, I was say, I, I would think of some boys in my ear who, who could have done with a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say to some degree, your ear are probably, in my opinion, better to deal with mental fortitude and things like that because you had to do it yourself. You had nobody to rely on, and which I would say I put myself in that in that uh, in that bracket as well. Uh, we probably don't have to make those decisions ourselves. And, and I and my family said this to me quite recently. Uh, when you're in sport, you went to whoever it may be, doctor, physio you name it, this is my problem, what do I need to do? And they kind of come up with the solution, whereas your generation, you've got to come up with the solution, be it either go one way in the fork of the road, find a solution or come up with a problem to to, to come over those circumstances. So I say to, to some degree, 
you're probably mentally more have a stronger willpower than I would say probably athletes of the, of my generation. Yeah, that's possibly a, a a good point. I haven't thought about it like like that really. And 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 at the time, you did, you know you don't realize you're probably building your, your your you know your your resilience and your and your your mental fortitude and your intestinal fortitude without even thinking about it. But it's it's it yeah, that's probably. Uh, that's probably a, a good point, and, and, and things like fitness. You know, you have to train on your own if you wanted to play. If you wanted to play at the, at the highest level of club rugby, and say as a fullback, you were you were lacking a bit of speed off the mark. You, you'd, the only way you could do it was was to get out on your own and, and train on your own. You know, now as a professional, you'd have a, a sprint coach and a and a, you'd, you'd be timed every. Uh, you know. Uh, in, you'd have your stats for your for your thirty meter sprint and your fifty meter sprint, and everything would be done scientifically. But if you thought you were a, a couple of yards off the pace, and to get back in the team after an injury, you needed to sharpen up. You just had to get out there and sprint when you could, you know. And this probably next question for you, Phil, is probably very controversial within Welsh sport at this, at this moment. Do you do you think obviously what regional rugby had to come in when it did? But do you think it's possibly killed the club game now? And, and obviously, some of the clubs are going by the wayside as we speak. Yeah, this is this is the toxic question that's been on people's minds for um, well since regional rugby came in two thousand and three. This is just my opinion. This is not uh, necessarily how it is. This is uh, this is you know, and this opinion, my opinion, is no worth no more than than Joe Bloggs's opinion, you know, or any rugby lover in Wales or or around the world. What people have to remember in two thousand and three, the Welsh Rugby Union were pretty strapped for cash they had that massive stadium debt uh, and there was no way that well, what did we have then we had the, the first division of what was it or the premier division was it, i think it was 12 teams or 16 teams maybe i first started broadcasting in 95 and i used to go to abtelaria most of the weeks in dunland so there we are i think it was a 16 team league if i remember and the game went professional there was no way that that um 16 teams could have been funded um, certainly not funded centrally by by the Welsh Rugby Union. Um, the benefactors helped. So you had Peter Thomas at Cardiff and so on, Tony Brown at Newport. Um, and then when David Moffat uh, came in and took over, I think what he found was that the, the fact that the, the game was the game was bankrupt, you know, and it, there was only sufficient money in Wales to sustain five as he had it five professional teams now now it's four um what i think probably they didn't get right then hindsight is such a wonderful thing mm. 2020 vision hindsight is such a wonderful thing what they probably didn't get right then was was the way that the the game was carved up and i would have looking back now i think i would have gone with still with the clubs you know because those brands of, of Cardiff rugby club, the most famous rugby club in the world, probably, was certainly one of the most famous names in the world. Cardiff Arms Park, probably the most, one of the most famous sports grounds in the world. Never mind just rugby, you know. I think I would have gone with the with five clubs um, because you've got the tradition, you've got you had the following, you know, you had the you had the the the, 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 uh, the brand of the clubs that were known uh, in, in you know not only through the throughout UK and Europe but, but worldwide but if you remember at the time um, and probably those five clubs most people would have said probably if you look at the traditions most people would have said Cardiff Newport Swansea Llanelli and one other um, I've got to be very careful what I say because I can feel people you know for friends of mine what are you on about Steve but those, those four certainly were always known as the big four you know they were the ones that used to play the touring sides they were the ones that used to get the big crowds and they were the ones that were probably the most well known and also the big population centres Newport, Cardiff and Swansea um, then the fifth would probably have been somebody like Pontypris who were quite strong at the time Neath were quite strong you know you had Bajan Aberavon, Ebervale. So how were you, you would have got that through politically, um, Welsh rugby being what it is, you know, with the tribal nature, I'm not sure. And I wouldn't like to have been the bloke who, who had to try it. So what I think what they came up with in the end with David Moffat, it was a little bit of a, a fudge, you know. So you had Cardiff Blues, which are really Cardiff, I suppose, which the people in the valleys don't like. Uh, you had Newport, which went in with Ebervale, first of all, but then Ebervale, 
had to had to drop out through financial issues. So you had the Newport Gwent Dragons. Well, was that supposed to be the Gwent side, or was it still Newport? It was a bit of a fudge, and nobody really quite knew, you know. And it was it was neither fish nor fowl, and I think it did alienate a lot of uh, a lot of people. You had the Celtic Warriors then, of course, which was Pontypridd and the Valleys and Bridgend, um, and they ran into financial trouble, so so they were closed down. So you have an area there, the Valleys, which okay, uh, geographically is in the blues region as they say but culturally culturally it's quite a long way from from the city slickers of cardiff you know so so what we've got now is a bit of a hybrid which which um it'll probably take another half a generation or even a generation for the for the for the regions as they call to be to be truly loved you know to be truly loved um and what you what you've definitely got to say it it has been to the detriment of, of, of the clubs you know even though the clubs still exist in the Premiership and Scrum Five are covering a live Premiership game every Friday which is great fun but it's meant that those clubs have been downgraded you know and whereas Neath would probably play in front of well six or seven thousand packing out the Knoll you know uh, in a wonderful atmosphere and Neath be, you know at the time being the team of uh, of Britain um, Pontypool packing out uh, you know. Pontypool Park, being the finest team in the country for, for several seasons, they're now playing in front of a few hundred, you know, and, and it's very much like the second second tier of. Uh, so it ha it has downgraded uh, has downgraded the clubs, and I think w w one thing you will say about the regional game though is the fact you cannot argue that it's not been good for the, the national side because since two thousand and three we've had. Um, well, we had two Grand Slams. We've had a, a championship, championship winning team. We've had a, a, a Lions captain from Wales twice, unbeaten Lions captain. We've had the Wales coach has been the Lions coach together with backroom staff. You know, we sell out the Millennium Stadium generally for, for Six Nations games. The Welsh team is the, the, the money power driver of the game. So you can't argue that it's not been good for the, for the, the top of the game. For the for the for the international game, but it has been at the, to the detriment of the of the clubs, which is which is very sad. And I, I I'm very much I, I when I use Twitter, I often I, I try and um, sort of uh, speak up for club rugby and promote club rugby as much as I can. I use the hashtag Love Club Rugby, and I think it's we've got to find a way of getting keeping club rugby in the in the limelight because without clubs, uh, that's where a lot of the interest. It comes from, and that's where still most kids first pick up a ball is 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 probably not in the schools, not in the primary schools like I did. I had a rugby school teacher, a rugby teacher in school when I was in primary school in Cardiff, Mr. Ted Pierce, um, who who was the first guy who put a ball in my hand, you know, and lots of other kids in our school. And every school teacher seemed to have one. Uh, no, it's generally okay. They might have a, a Welsh Rugby Union club half, uh, hub office that goes into the schools. But generally, it's the clubs that first put a, a rugby ball into into a kid's hand. Certainly, for them to play in an organised way. So anything that that is to the detriment of clubs is to the detriment of the game. That, that that's my opinion. But then also, Phil, obviously rugby now, especially well, South Wales has got competition from football, so it's probably more difficult, or a child has a more of a choice. Which way they go, obviously, well, football has that lucrative, lucr lucr I can't think of the word, being more lucrative than rugby because of its, well, the money you could possibly earn. But obviously, it's, it's going back to it. And what I would say to any kid, it's at the heart of it. It is our national sport, rugby. So it's well, okay. it's that's, that's that's a big. You could debate that one uh, till the cows come on. What is, you know, what is the definition of a national sport? I would say that when the Welsh rugby team does well, it has a huge effect on the Welsh nation, um, and and it it is it, it's I think it stirs the the Welsh consciousness more than any other more than any other sport more, more than i think even perhaps doing well in football or the european championships a couple of years ago was brilliant uh, even more so than than, than uh, i know we had Geraint thomas winning the the, uh, the tour de france which was brilliant or a, even if a welsh athlete gets a gold medal at the olympic games nicole cook Geraint thomas again jay jones you know they're all fantastic but i don't think there's anything if wales rugby is doing well winning a six nations 
you know, they had, when Wales played France in the semi-final of the World Cup in New Zealand, they had 70,000 in the stadium watching on the big screen, you know. When Wales played Ireland in 2005 to win the Grand Slam, they had, they had like 15,000 on the green outside the city hall watching a screen. 100,000 people came into the, to the city centre and didn't even go to the match. So I think there is that. The, the, um, the point you make about football is, is, very, uh, is very poignant. And rugby has a problem, in my, in my estimation, uh, rugby has a problem with losing players, particularly male players. Uh, from the game at the age of 18, you know, and, and there's five, there's five sort of factors. And again, this is no, there's no empirical evidence that I've got for this. This is just going around so many rugby clubs, talking to people. And I, this is the message that I get. First of all, the, uh, the first factor is that um, at, at 16, a lot of young players in, in, in clubs are, are swept up by the regional academies, you know, at 16 to 18, and uh, they're taken away from their club. They're not allowed to play for their youth team. They can only play for the, the regional age group side. And of course, at 18 years of age, most of those players are not going to be good enough to make it as professionals. That's the very nature of it. And a lot of those players walk away from the game. They think rugby's done them a disservice and they fall out of love with it. They haven't got a club to fall back on because they've been taken away from that club. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of kids walk away from the game there. So that's one factor. Another factor is uh, more children or more 18-year-olds go to university than went to university in my day. In the Glamorgan Wanderers youth team, I think I was only one of two people who went to, 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 to higher education. Now that's, you could probably, it's probably half, probably out of 15, probably 10 would go to university, I would say. Another one is the fact of um, uh, many more sports are on offer, like you just said there. You know, you can do swimming, badminton, triathlon, you know, all, none of these sports were available to, to me when I was a kid in, this, in the 70s. Uh, the other two then are, are um, uh, Saturday jobs is, is, is another important one. And the other one that a lot of people don't think about is the physicality of the game. And a lot of kids, 16, 17, 18, they just don't want to play it because they don't want to get hurt, you know. Rugby has become all the way down the levels virtually now, a game for big, athletic, monstrous blokes, you know. And the days of the, the little guy on the wing or the torn, tall beanpole guy in the second row or the fat guy playing prop are gone, really. You've got to have a degree of physicality now to play the game. And um, a lot of kids, I hear anecdotally, giving it up uh, because of that and, and getting parental pressure from parents, particularly mothers, to not play because of, obviously, the fear of getting, getting hurt. But also, though you didn't mention, obviously, the, the big one, nowadays um brain injuries and concussion would that have a play would that come under one of those as well that's got a, that's a huge factor i say again particularly for parents you know i mean I, i've got a daughter um if i was a, if i was a, a dad with a 16 year old boy now just making that transition from sort of like uh, under 16s to go to youth to, to play youth rugby or going from youth rugby to senior rugby would i be con con concerned if uh if he was making that transition, I probably would be. I probably would be because the the physicality of the game now, and not just the fact that people are so big, so huge, you know, they're, they're, they're real, real sort of muscle men these days. Not just that, but the way the game is. In my day, the game was all about, you know, slickness of hand and speed of pass and, and trying to evade um, collisions. Now, the game is really all about collision. You know, collision, 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 and then let's see what's left. If we can, you know, we've, 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 can we find a bit of space for our backs when everyone else is knocked out? You know, that type of thing. So, but then, but then, shouldn't the IRB step in and say, "Well, we know about these uh, obviously head injuries, concussions becoming more of a problem because the players are more physical, are more athletics, obviously." You've been a PE teacher, you can relate to it. It's obviously, speed and velocity, you have a bigger object hitting in one another, you're going to have a bigger impact. So shouldn't they, as a governing body now, think, well, let's change something and, and yeah, make, well, maybe go back to what, in essence, was the old side of the game? Anybody could play any position. It's difficult to put the genie back into the bottle, uh, James, but they are certainly they are certainly legislating against the head injury now, aren't they? You know that any 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 contact with the head now, whether it, whether intended or not, is is penalised by a penalty, often a red card, um, 
uh, anything to do with to do with high tackles. They, 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 they've moved the tackle area to the shoulder now, haven't they? I can see it going lower. I can see it eventually going perhaps even to to the, the, the waistband, you know, and players having to wear, having a shirt with a, with a yellow hoop around it. Uh, that's the level at which you've got to, you've got to tackle or, or below, you know. So I think World Rugby, in fairness to them, are, are um, on the case, particularly with, with regards to, to the head injuries part of it. It'll obviously take time to filter through. The Sam Warburton tackle against uh, France in uh, the World Cup in 2011, we were all aghast at it at the time. You know, it was just, oh, that should have only been a yellow card and what have you. Now, if that tackle happened, everyone would say straight red, goodbye. It's taken a little bit of time when the, from the time the law comes in. It takes, there's a bit of a lag from when the law comes in or the directive comes in to when it actually gets, everybody gets wind of it and, you know, gets used to, used to it. So I, I do think World Rugby are, um, uh, are trying to address, uh, you know, that side of it. What you can do about players getting bigger and bigger and stronger and faster, I don't know, apart from um, have a weight limit, which they do in New Zealand, of course, at uh, junior level. But then, obviously, you mentioned bringing the tackle uh, height down significantly. Wouldn't the purist and, you know, the old school think rugby, and, and you've probably heard this a lot, becoming soft? And obviously, if you lower the tackle line again, even lower... Would that argument still come up? Well, uh, uh, I never really remember J.P.R. Williams. I remember a famous shoulder charge by uh, J.P.R. Williams once on a French winger. That would have been outlawed now. But I never really remember J.P.R. Williams tackling around the, the chest. J.P.R. Williams was the finest tackler of a, of a tackling player I've ever I've ever seen. And I don't, don't, don't remember, remember him going high, you know, so you always talk to tackle low, round the legs, 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 take their legs. They can't run without their legs. That was the, that was the, the mantra. So um, I wouldn't have thought, I don't think it would, it would have, uh, it, it would make the game any, uh, any softer if you, if you, if you, um, you know, outlaw tackling from say above the waist. And I think it'd make the game a bit, Bit more enjoyable to watch because uh, you'll be able to get the ball away quicker from the tackle, you know, offloads and whatever you are the tackle, and that might force uh, that would certainly speed the game up, and then that might force players to become less big but more um, aerobically, uh, aerobically and anaerobically fit, you know. Well, you could kind of see that uh, uh, well, uh, in, in a little bit with the national team on the weekend against Tonga. Okay, they're playing. No disrespect to the Tongan national team. It's not South Africa. It's not Australia. It's not New Zealand. That kind of Harlem Globetrotter uh, offload the Welsh team was doing. You think, well, you well, I don't expect to see that when they play South Africa on the weekend, but you never know. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, they did play some good stuff, you know, particularly, uh, particularly as the game broke up in, in, the, in the second half. One, one thing I think, the, uh, going back to your, your point about... Uh, um, what what can world rugby do? One of the things they they might be able to do, uh, um, obviously there are, there would perhaps be a downside to this, but is to limit the amount of substitutions. You know, because at the moment we've got we've got players who are fit for twenty minutes, you know, the impact players they call them, the finishers, as Eddie Jones likes to say. So you know they'll bring on a prop, a massive massive prop or a big second row, who just by the look at them, you know they wouldn't last the eighty minutes. But they're okay for the twenty minutes, and they're coming on against tired players, you know, and that's going to have a, an impact. Pardon the pun. Um, so I, I don't know if, if we went back to the days of just replacements for injuries. Maybe, maybe that would, maybe that would um, make things a bit better. Then you'd have to start with probably a, a team that could that could be, uh, you know, more, more mobile for longer in a match. Would have to be mobile for the eighty minutes, and maybe that would bring sizes down. And, Collisions down. Um, there, there are various ways. The, the trouble is, whenever you rugby's got enough laws and directives. You know, if mm. you read the, the rugby law book, you know it's um, you need to be a, a lawyer really to, to work it out. Somebody, you know, and then you have the directives that come in every year from World Rugby and so on. Um, and one of the things, whenever a law gets changed, there is always the law of unintended consequences. So a law can be. Uh, well, one of the classics was when they brought in, uh, you couldn't kick direct to touch from a ball pass back into the 22. And the idea was that, that teams wouldn't kick for touch so much and that perhaps they'd run it a bit more. And what happened, you had teams would, uh, they knew they couldn't kick for touch, so they just kick it as long as they could. And then the old aerial tennis came in, you know, 
and that was an unforeseen consequence of a, of a law change that on the, on the face of it looked, looked positive. So law tinkering is, um, is uh, and, it, and it seems that every, not a, not a season goes by without some sort of new law or new directive coming in, is it? Exactly. And my final question for you, Phil, before we wrap up the episode, is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, <laughs> what would that be? Um, <coughs> I would say, um, well, we've, we've talked about a lot of things, haven't we? That, uh, uh, you know, from, from uh, law changes in rugby to uh, mental illness to uh, psychological techniques of a sportsman. Um, I would just, uh, my, my one mantra is the one I used to try and uh, tell the kids in school, you know, and when I was, a, when I was a special needs teacher or when I was a PE teacher, I used to think if the kids went away from my lessons um, and they'd had fun, they'd enjoyed it, they would have learned something. They might not have learned what I intended them to learn, but they would have learned something. It would have been a positive. They would have. They would have taken something positive out of it. So um, I, uh, I would. And the, the mantra I always use is, is a, a, a great former All Black called um, what was, what was his name, um, Chris Laidlaw from the 1960s. He was the man that invented the spin pass. Came on tour with the All Blacks in 1967. He became a government minister in New Zealand uh, afterwards. Chris Laidlaw, and he used to say about rugby training. He said, if there's no fun in it. There's no future in it. And I think that's as applicable to, to rugby, to teaching, to athletics, to working in your office, to being a doctor in a hospital. You know, if you can enjoy what you do and you can have fun and have a positive experience, um, you know, you, you'll always get something with it. So try in whatever you do, try to try to enjoy it. Mind you, it's taken me 57 years to, to come around to that way of thinking and I'm still working on it. So once again, Phil, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Great, James. Great to speak to you. The pleasure has been all mine. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Phil and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at philsteel one and at jamesorroberts11 on Twitter and Facebook. And again, do check out Phil's book, Nerves of Steel. Make sure to check that out. The link will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsum.com under the category sports. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.